Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together and we'll jump in. Well, Father, I uh, come to you now aware of my need, Lord. Um, I need your help this morning to communicate this word um, in a way that's, that's real and honest and sincere. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and be our teacher? Would you um, shine the light on Jesus? Glorify him in this place. Show us your glory, Lord. We, we need to hear from you. Um, and I pray that all of us would deal honestly with you this morning. Would you bring us out of our hiding, out of our shame, and help us to... Um, Help us to call out to you, to lift up our hearts to you this morning. Jesus, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Michael. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I am excited to bring this word this morning. It's something that I have needed. Um, and, you know, there's really no safe place uh, you know, to get around Genesis chapter three, not up here in the pulpit or anywhere else. This is, uh, this is a word that affects every one of us uh, every day. And if I can, just on maybe a little more lighthearted note, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just introduce you to me and my family this way. My wife and I have three sons and a little girl on the way in just a couple weeks. And the, one of the biggest changes in our life recently is that our oldest son just started kindergarten. Some of you guys have been there. Some of you know uh, what that feels like to send a child off to kindergarten. What I'm realizing is there are a lot of emotions involved. Uh, Case, our oldest, has felt, uh, he, I was asking him before school, how are you feeling, buddy, as he's getting ready for his first couple weeks? And he's like, dad, I feel nervous and excited and scared and happy all at the same time, like all these emotions. And what I've realized is he's not the only one feeling those emotions. We as his parents feel those same emotions as we're dropping him off. And I think the first two weeks, uh, I don't know that there was one day that went by that, that Case didn't shed tears at school. I think he really missed his mom, especially. Um, but for all of us, we just were kind of an emotional wreck trying to get Case off to school and, uh, and help him through this season, this, this you know, first significant trial in his life uh, going off to, to kindergarten. But one of the things that's been a dagger in my heart uh, is recognizing that there's a lot of voices that Case hears and learns from now uh, some of them are good and positive and others are not. And, uh, and, and one of the realizations has been Case coming home from school and there are like songs that we used to love to listen to, all of us together, or shows that we used to love to watch or activities we used to love to do. And now the comment is, dad, that's a baby song. I think to myself, who told you that? Like, where did you hear that? Because that did not come from me. I don't know who you've been listening to, um, but where did this come from? Who told you? And, I, and for me, the, you know, as I've been trying to get my head and heart around this passage, the title that I've selected for, for this sermon is simply this, who told you? It's a quote from the Lord in verse 11, who told you? I wanna invite every single one of us this morning in a passage that's so familiar that sometimes we just miss it. It's just like our eyes glaze over. We're like, oh yeah, I know this one. Uh, it's probably referred to in every sermon you've ever heard. Genesis chapter three comes up in some way, shape or form. But I wanna invite you to listen with fresh ears. The invitation today is to listen carefully because listening carefully to the voice of the Lord is a life and death matter. Genesis chapter three is gonna show us. We're gonna dive in and see that 
we need to listen carefully because the voice of the enemy is deceptive. Let's look back at verses one through seven and see this again. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That word crafty in the original language sounds a lot like the word for naked from Genesis 2.25. They were naked and unashamed. That's an interesting play on words there. I just want us to, to hold that in our minds for just a second. But the serpent is introduced after God has created the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve are in the garden of the Lord enjoying perfect fellowship and harmony in their relationship with God and each other. And all of a sudden this snake slithers onto the scene. As the reader we're kind of all on our heels left wondering who is this, this creature and what's about to happen here. And then look at the question here. And I want, us, I want to see if you can pay attention to the tactics of the enemy in these verses because he runs in very deep ruts. Maybe you've heard this line of reasoning through the highway traffic of your mind even this past week. Listen to what he says. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Just think about how crafty that question actually is. If you look back at Genesis 2 verse 16, what God actually said is this. Genesis 2 16 says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord said, Adam and Eve, look around. I have provided so much fruit. There is more fruit in this garden than you could ever possibly eat. Like I am overabundant and lavish in my provision for you. I'm asking you to trust me about this one tree. This is an invitation for you to trust me. And, and the enemy just takes that and says, can you believe God said that to you? Did he actually say you can't eat from that one tree? Notice what's the insinuation underneath that. Like, isn't he always withholding from you? He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't love you. Do you hear the voice of the enemy? Do you hear his tactics? He runs in very deep ruts. And look at what happens in verse 2. Eve replies, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we, we have some things missing, right? And we have some things added in here. So Eve, first of all, this reply to the serpent should never happen, right? I mean, she's been invited into this conversation with this unknown conversation partner who's questioning God's authority and goodness is inviting her to doubt whether God really is who he says he is. And so she is trying to answer this serpent and notice that the serpent said, did God actually say? He's leaving out. He's not relating to God in the way that we saw in Genesis chapter two over and over. He's referred to as the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And the serpent says, Let's just talk about that powerful creator who's holding out on you. But let's remove all the love and the covenant relationship that's implied in Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is the covenant name for God. He is Yahweh. And Eve begins to entertain that line of reasoning and that, that thought pathway. And she says, well, 
We may eat generally of the fruit of the trees in the garden. There's no surely or every there, but we, we can eat of some fruit. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Not specifying which one. There's one in there that like, even if you touch it, because God's pretty harsh and strict and domineering, you will die. And friends, I wonder if we can hear what's happening. Like Eve hasn't taken of the fruit yet and eaten, but the fall of humanity is already happening, right? Because sin is, in its essence, it is saying to God, I don't trust you. Like, God, I know what you've said. I just don't believe it. And unless we just put all the emphasis on Eve, I just want to draw our attention in verse 6 the narrator is careful to include this detail. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam's standing here passively watching this all go down, watching this serpent slither up to his wife. Adam, to whom God had directly given the command saying, trust me about this tree. And his role was to to cherish the word of God in such a way that he would pass that on to his bride, that he would be a protector in this moment. Adam's role should have been to kill this snake. And instead he just watches this all unfold and he participates himself. Do you feel it? Do you feel that this is not just some ancient story that has nothing to do with our lives today? This has everything to do with all of our stories. And look at what happens next. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The emphasis in the Hebrew is on not. He is saying, I know what God said and I am saying otherwise. My word against God's, who are you gonna trust? So if the first step, if his first tactic is to just introduce doubts and questions about God's goodness and love towards you, the next thing that he does is he introduces a lie saying, hey, I have something better than God. I'm I'm offering you something that's better than God. I know better than God. Will you take a step on this path with me and see where this goes? It's at this point that this creature, when you think about Adam and Eve, they were made in the image of God after his likeness to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here Adam and Eve are taking their instructions from a creature disregarding the commandment of the creator. And look at what happens next. Verse five, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's interesting because we just read in chapter one how God made Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness. They already are like God in the sense that they're created to reflect his glory like little mirrors that show to the world how wonderful and glorious and loving their father and creator really is. But Adam and Eve are on their heels watching this happen, listening to the serpent, engaging in this dialogue with him. And I just, just to make it really plain what's going on here, the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12 is going to tell us that, that the devil and Satan is known as that ancient serpent. That he's been doing this from the beginning and he still does this today. Jesus says about the enemy in John chapter 8 that he is a liar and the father of lies and that he has been a murderer from the beginning. 
that this voice right here that says you can't trust God's word, you can't trust that he's good, come and take a step on this path off of the path of life in the presence of God, beholding his glory, living in perfect harmony with him, come take a step over here with me. I have something to offer you that God is holding out on you. That is a voice. If you're hearing that voice through the highway traffic of your mind, this is the voice of someone who wants to kill you. He wants, he wants you to be cut off from the presence of God, from relationship with God. And, and as I've been praying for, for each of you, preparing for this time, what was hitting me is it's easy to receive Genesis 3 as just, just almost like a fable or just this ancient story that's totally disconnected from reality for us. Um, and if we can just keep it real for a minute, I just, I just wanted to share with you like something about thinking about the origins of sin. I, I kept thinking in my own story, where do I first remember feeling Satan's hot breath breathing down my neck? Like when can I, when's a moment where I can flash back and remember this line of reasoning kind of going through my mind for the first time? I can think of plenty more examples before this and after. I can think of examples from this past week, from even this morning. It's a little more comfortable to confess something from the distant past. So, uh, so uh, go easy on me. So what came to mind is I remember being like a sixth or seventh grade boy in the locker room with my buddies. And I remember, um, I remember these guys were laughing about some movie that they had seen that had inappropriate content in it, sexual content, nudity, that sort of thing. And I remember at that point in my life, Jesus had already taken a hold of my life. He had already saved me by his grace. And I knew, I knew that this was something that I just needed to like tune out and disregard. Like I knew what he had called me to. And yet just that, that lingering thought of, man, what am I missing out on here? Remained. And I remember a couple weeks later, I was, on a, I was on a vacation with my family and we like had so many fun things that we could do. We, we were fishing and playing on the beach and just like enjoying time outside. But I had this moment where I was just feeling kind of bored and looking for something to, to make me um, happy. And I remember I found myself just like retreating, secluded into a remote room in the house, flipping through channels on the TV and as it happens, I came across that movie. And I remember thinking to myself like, man, I just need to keep going through the channels. Like, I don't need to go there. But then I scrolled back up and clicked on this movie and I'm sitting there watching this. And it's almost like the line of reasoning through my mind went something like this. Did God actually say, like, is this really so bad? All of your buddies have watched this movie. Like, isn't he so withholding? God's always holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be satisfied. Maybe he doesn't love you. And I remember that experience vividly of sitting there watching this movie and just by the end of it, realizing like I could just feel the guilt and shame washing over me of, of like, what am I doing up here? My whole family is out enjoying time together. And I, I'm up here thinking that maybe this will make me happy. And I feel so empty on the other side of this. I feel terrible. This is so terribly unsatisfying. And about that time, I remember hearing my dad's footsteps walking up the stairs and I like changed the channel real quick. You know that feeling? And I just wonder if you can find your heart in these verses today. 
That's something from my distant past that unfortunately has repeated itself over and over and over in my story. And and I think that you can relate. And I just want to invite you today as we're considering what it means to listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, because it's a life and death matter. And because the voice of the enemy is deceptive. Can you take inventory of your own heart and life of where you are hearing the lies of the enemy? And they're just so alluring that you're taking steps off of this path of life that is trust in Jesus. Like, can we just be honest for a minute and, and find ourselves in Genesis chapter three? Find our own hearts here hiding from the Lord. Find our own hearts saying to the Lord, I just don't trust you, God. I know what you've said. I just don't believe it. I know for me, Genesis 3 finds me out in these ways. And I just want us to feel the weight of what happens here. When we step onto that path with the enemy saying that we are going to be like God, what we're doing is we're now viewing God as our rival and as our enemy. It's far darker and more insidious than we ever realized. Sin always takes you further than you intended to go. That what you're doing is you are you are stepping into the domain of darkness. You're participating in the domain of darkness. Ephesians says it this way, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy. Like we need to stare into the darkness in our own hearts and in this passage so that we can see the light breaking through that God's about to intervene. And I just want us to feel this as we take a look at verses eight through 13. We need to listen carefully because the voice of the Lord is just and merciful. The voice of the Lord is just and merciful. Look back with me at verse eight. And actually before I get there, I need to just read verse seven so we feel this scene. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, think about this for a second. You've got Adam and Eve hiding from God for the first time in their life because they know that they are naked. They've always been naked, but now they know that they're naked. And the enemy had said, hey, I'm going to give you this, this desirable knowledge, this knowledge of good and evil. If you take this step, if you transgress the command of God and come with me over here. But what they didn't realize is they now know evil by experience. They now know what it is to experience guilt and shame and separation from God. And I I wonder if you can just picture this scene with me in verse eight. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They have sewed loincloths out of fig leaves, this pitiful covering for themselves, which we all do in many different ways in our life. And they're hiding from God. And the Lord God calls out to them. Now think about this for just a second. 
God is the just judge of all the earth. What could have happened here is we could just skip straight ahead to verse 14. That could have happened. God could have been like, hey, I'm just going to go straight to pronouncing judgment on you because you have transgressed my good and holy law. You have made a mess of this beautiful situation in front of you. But he does it because he is both just and merciful. God asks questions and listens. Like, can we feel this together? How does God deal with you in your lowest moments? How does he deal with you and me in our places of greatest shame? He moves towards us in love saying, I still want you. I still want relationship with you. I'm moving towards you in love saying, where are you? Brothers and sisters, he's saying the same thing to us today. Where are you? And by the way, he's not asking that for his information. God already knows exactly where they are. He's asking for their information. He is both the just judge of all the earth and the wonderful counselor. He's inviting Adam and Eve to consider, where am I? Like, what am I doing hiding from God right now? Because God wants them to see that any voice you've been listening to that makes you see God as your rival and enemy and makes you cower in fear away from him, that is a voice that is lying to you. It's a voice that wants to kill you. And God is moving towards Adam and Eve saying, where are you? Some theologians and scholars will say that this this image of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day is meant to help us imagine like an evening breeze and this beautiful like paradise. And God just wanted to walk with his children like he did every evening. And all of a sudden they're hiding from him. It's a beautiful image and it highlights God's mercy. Others will, will say, actually, this idea of, of the cool of the day could also be translated the wind of the storm. This theophonic storm of the judge of all the earth showing up and Adam and Eve being called to account. And I just want us to see in this passage, we're going to see that God is both just and merciful, that there's a lot of truth to both of those. And yet what makes his presence dangerous is our sin and rebellion against him. We were intended to live in his presence forever. We were not created to die. We were made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But look at the tragedy of this moment. God's calling out saying, where are you? And we have to ask ourselves the same thing. But in verse 10, Adam admits it. We hear it from his own mouth. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He says, God, I'm afraid of you. He doesn't say, I have a right reverence and awe for you, like the fear of the Lord that we hear all throughout the Old Testament. He says, God, I'm afraid of you. I'm cowering in fear because I know that I'm your enemy now. And then what God says is, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And I wonder if we can feel Adam's response in verse 12. I know that I can. He goes straight to blame shifting and making excuses. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He goes straight to blaming his wife, which is never a good idea. But then he goes so far as to say, this woman whom you gave me, God, actually you're the one who gave her to me. So this is really all your fault. And and we laugh at that and I do too. But the scary reality is that sounds a lot like the serpent's logic, doesn't it? 
Adam has taken a step onto the path of destruction and now his reasoning is, and his logic is through this lens of seeing God as the enemy, seeing God as the problem instead of his loving father who has provided lavishly for him. Do you feel what's happening in these verses? I mean, Adam in the previous chapter breaks out into poetry at how beautiful and amazing and wonderful his best friend, his wife is. And then now he's saying, God, she's the problem and you're the problem. Do you feel what sin does? It breaks things, fractures relationships in all of our story. But look, the Lord also has a question for the woman. He turns to her and says, what is this that you have done? I wonder if you can just feel his mercy even underneath the way that he's asking the question. I mean, this is an intense moment in biblical history and God wants to give Eve the chance to speak. He says, Eve, I'm, I'm reaching out to you as well. I have a question for you in the midst of this. And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least she can admit it, right? I mean, at least she is just honest about what happened. But we see that Adam and Eve's sin here, both of them together, both of them responsible, both of them taking a, a step against God, away from God, turning away from him, it breaks things. And yet I want us to feel the mercy of God, even as we head into this next section about God's judgment. And before we get there, can I just invite you to consider when they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord, did you know that that word for presence is actually literally the face of the Lord? Because of their sin, they're hiding from God's face. They used to enjoy sweet communion with God, but sin has fractured their relationship with God. And so I wonder for all of us, can you hear the voice of the wonderful counselor today reaching out to you saying, where are you? Who told you that? What is this that you've done? Because here's a definition for healing I'd invite you to consider. I know in my life, one of the things that I'm, that I'm learning right now is healing comes when we finally tell back to God the truth that he already knows. We, we experience healing in our hearts and in our lives when we finally tell back to God the truth that he already knows. And you know, we're, we, we experience this this brokenness in relationships. And then he invites us, hey, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that you can experience this healing in the context of loving relationship. Do you feel this invitation from God to you? He's saying, where are you? I'm moving towards you in love. Would you come to me? Would you open your heart to me? So we've said so far that we need to listen carefully to the voice of the Lord because it's a matter of life and death the voice of the enemy is deceptive. The voice of the Lord is full of justice and mercy. But not only this, look with me at verses 14 through 19. Our sin has real and devastating consequences. We need to listen carefully to God's voice because our sin breaks things. It has real and devastating consequences. Did you hear it in verse 14? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Before God even turns to Eve and then to Adam, 
He first has to declare over his enemy that he will win the victory. He says to the serpent, you will eat dust, which is an image of defeat. He says, I am going to come and make this right. He pronounces a curse on his enemy and on the created order itself, on the realm where Adam and Eve live. He does not curse Adam and Eve here. Isn't that interesting? They live under the curse in this fallen world, but they're not cursed. God says, hey, before, before I deal with this, with Adam and Eve, I just need to declare the gospel. Verse 15, we get the first proclamation of the gospel. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That phrase, her offspring, would cause the ears of the original hearers to perk up. It's this interesting phrase, her seed, and it points to the fact that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It points ahead to the savior who's gonna come and be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so we could be adopted as children of God. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent, to deal with sin and death finally and fully but he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Do you hear God, even in the midst of judgment, is overflowing with mercy. And he is towards you and me as well. He's reaching out his hand saying, would you trust me? I myself will come and deal with your sin at the cross you see the, the weight, the, the devastating consequences of sin. And then if I can just summarize verses 16 through 19, I just want to say it this way. He pronounces over the woman, over Adam, because you have sinned and turned away from me, your life is now going to be marked by pain. One of the words for pain here is travail. That same word used for pain and childbearing is the same word that we see down when God says to Adam, in pain you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. Life's gonna be hard. I don't have to convince you of that. Like life in a broken fallen world is characterized by pain, by sweat, by, uh, by returning to the dust. God created his children to live with him forever and instead we're all going to die. As he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he's talking both physically and spiritually, of course, because death at its core is a separation from God. Like death at its core is a separation. It's why we grieve when we lose someone we love because the pain is that we're separated from them. We can't get to them. And yet what God is saying here, he's saying right here, because you have turned against me, there is a separation between us. Your sin has fractured our relationship, your relationship with those around you, your relationship with the creation itself, and your relationship even within yourself is marked by brokenness. Such that the writer of Ecclesiastes says it this way, all things are full of weariness. And we can all feel that. So let me just give us one, one thing to think about here. When Adam and Eve hear this from God, God says, Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Those words desire and rule, 
these words introduce this idea that no longer are you going to serve one another in love. You're going to struggle to do so. Your relationship, which once was marked by loving and cherishing one another, now there's this reality of desiring and domineering. Because of the sin in your heart, the rebellion against me, the unwillingness to trust me and my design for you. Friends, do we feel the devastating reality here because we have not listened to the voice of the Lord? And so is there any hope? We've already talked about the gospel in this passage, but I want us as we conclude to look at these last verses and listen carefully because the Lord is the one who redeems our mess. The Lord's the one who redeems our mess. Did you see it in verse 20? After God has made this promise that he's gonna defeat his enemy through the offspring of the woman, and after he pronounces his just judgment, it's interesting, Adam has this beautiful thing now to say over his wife. He says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He calls his wife life giver. He hears in God's promise that God is going to continue to move his redemptive story, his redemptive plan forward, even in the midst of their brokenness, that God's gonna redeem their mess. And he has something beautiful to speak over his wife. And I don't want us to miss verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. Do you feel this? God is saying, hey, those fig leaves are pitiful. Let me clothe you. Like I'm the creator who made like bears and wolves and sheep. Like I know how to, I know how to protect. I know how to take care of you. Let me love you and care for you in this way. Let me cover your brokenness. It's not explicit, but it's implicit that an animal had to die, that blood had to be shed so that Adam and Eve's brokenness and sin could be covered. But I want us to feel verse 22. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And he cuts off his, his thought mid-sentence. We are privy here to God himself speaking father, son, and spirit, perhaps with the company of angels listening. God is saying, I cannot bear the thought of my image bearers who I have made to enjoy perfect relationship with me now that they have run away from me to live forever in this fallen state of being separated. I have to send them out from my holy presence, which is now dangerous to them. And we see what happens. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are sent out east of Eden. And the only way back is somebody has to come underneath that sword. Did you know that cherubim were, were woven into the tapestry that was part of the, the curtain of the temple that, guarded the, way, that, that um, guarded the way to the Holy of Holies? And Jesus, when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That Jesus alone is the way that we can have access back into God's presence. You know, the Bible says that your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jesus, the groom of heaven, came to rescue his bride, the church. He crushed the head of the serpent. He obeyed in every way that we have failed so that we could be restored into a relationship with God. Friends, for anyone in the room who doesn't yet, has not placed your faith in Jesus, you're still wondering if he's trustworthy. Can I just invite you to consider what other voice are you gonna listen to? 
Who else has loved you like this? Who else has come to die in your place and rise again so that you could be eternally safe in his love? Would you trust him? He has been so trustworthy. And brothers and sisters in the room, would you take this invitation from this passage as part of your journey with the Lord, as part of your discipleship journey to refute the lies of the enemy that run through our minds each day and say, Lord, I trust you. I believe, help my unbelief. He's worthy, amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for these moments together. I thank you that your word is living and active and that it's sharp. It it penetrates um, to my heart and soul in these moments. God, thank you that you are just and you are merciful. You are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that you forgive sinners like me. Thank you that you came for us when we ran from you. All of us have taken and eaten of this fruit. And I thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we can take and eat. That we can be saved by your grace through faith. We thank you, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen.